Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the UAW strike that is a currently ongoing, has been going on for about a month now. UAW, United Auto Workers, they represent the uh, auto workers, as you might imagine, um, who work at unionized plants, generally in the Midwest, in the U.S. And for probably decades, the UAW was one of you know two or three unions that people would think of and point to as like sort of the archetype union. They represent auto workers and manufacturing. They were responsible for building the middle class in this country in the middle part of last century, just sort of generically union blue collar stuff. And over the last few decades, their prominence in the country, their place in both the economy and in our culture faded. The UAW lost members, jobs were sent overseas, mistakes were made. The UAW has had... (laughs) Yep, true. Mistakes were made. Has largely felt itself on the back foot. But this strike represents the first time that they've gone on strike against all three big auto manufacturers ever, if not in decades. So it's a pretty clear signal of intent from the union that, okay, times have changed. It is time for us to make our voices heard again. Yeah, that's really what I think the the strikes are, are about. Obviously, the UAW has goals in mind, and we can talk about those in a little bit. But the rhetoric around this is different now because it's it's a lot more class warfare-y, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it should also be noted that it's not just auto workers that the UAW represents now. It's, it's also aerospace um, workers and um, higher education is another like category of people. So the UAW is a pretty big organization that just so happens to largely represent the unions at the big three automakers. So yeah, it's it's this is this is a cool thing that's happening. It really is. It's interesting because we talked about the WGA strike and we talked about how people tend to think of creative professions like writers, actors, production assistants, that kind of thing as basically not real jobs. They're they're creative jobs. You get to do what you are supposedly passionate about for a living. Ergo, you don't deserve good pay. You don't deserve good benefits. And it turned out that things for WGA and SAG-AFTRA members have gotten so dire in some cases that that strike attracted more support than you'd expect. And now the UAW, which, as you correctly point out, Ryan, is one of the most archetypical blue-collar unions in the country. I mean, 
we all know from listening to 75% of country songs on the radio that a pickup truck is one of the key symbols of being a full-blooded, corn-fed American male. Those guys are on strike too because their lives also suck. And, you know, not coincidentally, I think, this strike has attracted a significant amount of solidarity from other Americans because, well, (laughs) they make the thing that the country depends on. We don't have public transit. We don't have any real kind of, of mass transportation in this country. Having a car is largely part of what makes you an an American in the cultural sense. And the people who make them can't have a good life anymore. That's a real tuck to the heartstrings, I think. Specifically with this strike. A lot of what the UAW is fighting for is bringing back the things that they gave up during the 2007 recession and the bailout and the quote unquote restructuring of the auto industry that resulted from all of that. So UAW feels that they gave things up in order to save the auto industry at that time in order to make it so that their jobs could still exist down the line. And at that time, automakers were relying on federal funding just to stay afloat. Like it was a legitimately bad uh, moment for the industry. And 15 years later, those companies are making record profits. Their executives are seeing huge bonuses, huge salary increases, And what the UAW wants is for a little bit of, you know, recognition that they sacrificed to make that possible. They want to get back what they gave up. And on top of that, get a little bit extra now that we're in an economic boom time comparatively. Specifically, I'm going to quote a bit from an NBC News article from before the strike uh, early in September that details some of what. UAW's demands were. Uh, They were seeking a, quote, 40% wage hike over four years, amounting to 46% when you factor in compound interest, along with cost of living increases, beefed up retirement benefits, including pensions on par with what auto workers previously received, and full pay for a shortened 32-hour work week, down from 40. That last point, I think, is something that hasn't gotten the recognition maybe it deserves in discussion of all this, um, because like a four-day work week is something that we've discussed in the past on Punching Out as like a pretty radical demand, but it is also something that has been tried in places. It is something that has largely succeeded in the places where it's been tried. They found that actually productivity goes up when you aren't asking asking people to spend as much time on the job. There's less downtime that they're more productive with the time they spend at work because they have more time to refuel and to live their lives outside of work. So that's really interesting. And it's not the sort of thing that we've seen typically in uh, union negotiations is a call for a shortening of the work week beyond 40 hours, which has been taken as the standard for so long. Yeah, I'm, I think it's a really cool feature feature of this strike that what the union is asking for is 
a lot. They are asking for an enormous concession, which is really, really cool because for probably the past 15 years, particularly in um, like liberal institutions like the Democratic Party, the standard negotiating tacit, tactic that they use going into these negotiations, these types of, of you know, we, we need to win this is they go in with half measures. They go in at an already compromised position. Like how many times has this happened under like the Obama presidency? And how many times has it happened under Biden? And how many times did Hillary Clinton try to say, oh yeah, we're going to ask for half of what we actually need or want so that we can seem reasonable. But I think, I think it's a, a smart move to go in asking for the moon because it is what the workers deserve. And two, the way that workers have been treated in the past several decades, but particularly since the 2009 financial collapse and since the pandemic has been abominable. Like you ask these workers to give away their pensions, their pay, their raises, their their benefits, go to a tiered system, and then you keep them there for over a decade and just say, this is the new status quo. Maybe they shouldn't have given up any of those benefits in the first place, I would argue, but that was a different time. And I think at that point, maybe people were hoping that these would like the people they were talking to their bosses were reasonable people because it, it should be noted it wasn't that long after the government bailed out the automakers that they turned profits again it was probably if i remember correctly it was like a year or two after that they were turning profits and yet these workers have not seen any meaningful increase in fact zero increase in their pay in 12 15 years at this point so yeah, they should ask for a lot. And I understand why the automakers are balking at, you know, some of the the demands, but it's no less than what is deserved. It's interesting to contrast, I think, the union's demands, which are maximal and far out with the tactics that they've chosen to use in asking for those demands, because this is not a strike in which every UAW member has walked off the job. This is a strike where they have chosen as a matter of strategy to only strike at select plants, plants chosen to maximize the damage to the automakers while minimizing the number of workers who are on strike and therefore minimizing the number of workers that the UAW needs to you know, pay during the course of the strike with the strike fund. I'm going to quote a bit from a Intercept article about this tactic and about the success that it had early on in the strike and just catching the automakers flat-footed. As the United Auto Workers kept the big three automakers guessing about the union strike plans, the car manufacturers made a failed effort to head off the effects of the unprecedented labor action. 
Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis stalled production and moved parts out of plants across the country, according to rank-and-file workers, self-inflicting financial damage that could have been avoided by meeting workers' demands. In the weeks leading up to the strike, a cat-and-mouse game between the UAW and the companies unfolded, a version of guerrilla warfare between the parties. Through targeted walk-offs, the union aimed to destroy disrupt the company's operations with the fewest possible workers, which would allow the union strike fund to last longer into the conflict, essentially forcing the companies to pay workers even during the strike period. The companies, meanwhile, sought to anticipate precisely which plants would be struck and reorganize production and distribution to minimize losses. The big three guessed badly. Brandon Mancia, a director for the UAW's Region 9A, which spans New England and the Northeast, told The Intercept that the auto manufacturers are creating more problems for themselves than they would have faced had they come to an agreement with the union before contracts for its 150,000 workers expired last week. Instead of bargaining in good faith and understanding our demands and meeting us at the table, Mancia said, these companies are conducting strikes on themselves. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And I think it gets at something... Lou pointed out, maybe at the time of the bailout, you know, there's an alternate universe where the administration of the time, the administrations, because it was the George W. Bush and Obama ones, weren't full of cowards and uh, bought for just, you know, useless people in the pocket of the rich. And where currently all big three automakers are employee owned. That's what should have happened, because clearly the class of people that was in charge of them didn't deserve to be running them, but that was obviously unacceptable. So instead what we got is a bailout and they got to continue abusing their workers. And as Lou pointed out, those workers probably felt that their bosses were reasonable people with whom they could negotiate. And what we have learned in the 15 years since is that no one, no one with that kind of wealth is a reasonable person. Wealth is a form of brain damage in this country because it means you never have to hear the word no. It means you never have to hear anybody argue with your point. It means that nobody you ever respect will disagree with you. And by treating these companies as actual opponents, instead of just the other people, the people on the other side of the negotiating table, I think the UAW is kind of restoring what should be the spirit of these negotiations, which is that it's all fair. I mean, corporations have treated the rest of us that way forever. We've seen repeated stories of trucks driving into striking workers of uh, what was the, the, the famous alleged Pinkerton thing of cutting communication lines at a Verizon strike or a frontier strike. I think it was a few years ago. Verizon sounds right to me. I think it was in West Virginia. Yes. Corporations do not shy away from using, frankly, just disgusting tactics against unions. And this wasn't even one. All it did was cost the big three a little bit of time and some effort. Ooh, real freaking scary. Nobody was threatened. There was no physical violence. Nobody got hurt. All that happened was they have to shuffle some things around and pretend like nothing happened. This Intercept article notes that this tactic is a bit of a callback to the early days of the UAW. Um, Quoting from the article, the UAW stand-up strike strategy harkens back to the UAW strikes of the 1930s, when workers, quote, sat down on shop floors, 
occupying factories and using guerrilla tactics to win the kind of contracts that made auto companies the gold standard for U.S. manufacturing jobs. During the Flint, Michigan sit-down strike of 1936, which uh, I'll note here we've discussed on past episodes of Punching Out, workers employed diversionary tactics at a secondary GM plant to draw company security away from their primary target. The workers spread a rumor that they were going to target one plant, and when their employer acted on that false information, they snuck into a different plant that was their target all along. That action led to the union's first recognition at one of the big three. So to some degree, this feels new and novel, but it is also just a resurrection of union tactics gone by. There is a element of just bringing back the stuff that used to work rather than reinventing the wheel, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's old school. It's it's really like pretty cool to watch, let alone you know, Sean Fain, the, the UAW president, watching him too. It's really cool. And I, we are living in a cursed hellscape of a world, but at least unions are coming back. At least we have that going for us. I think it, it reflects a greater understanding of who the actual enemies are. And I think into the 1990s and the 2000s, I'm sort of, this there's a bit of extrapolation because I wasn't exactly an adult during uh, most of that time, but it feels like the thought process was we don't need to have an adversarial relationship between labor and capital. Now we can just kind of negotiate at the margins for a few things here and there and, and everything will kind of get better naturally. Now that the Soviet union's gone, now that, you know, everybody has agreed we're going to follow the U.S.-based, rules-based international order, which has especially been revealed to be a joke this week, everything will be fine because there's only one system. History ends. You know, it, it, it's just tweaking at the borders from now on. And we know that whenever things are more predictable and more more tunneled in that way, it always benefits power. It always benefits corporations and it always benefits the wealthy. And unions and and the UAW by following these tactics and making behaving unpredictably, frankly, they behaved unpredictably by striking against all three at the same time. That that's already something that I don't think those companies were ready for. By the way, can I just Briefly, side note that I didn't realize until several articles into our preparation for this that Stellantis used to be Chrysler. Yeah, I was. I just assumed they were a new EV company or something. Yeah, exactly. We're letting the French and Italians decide what we name auto companies over here now. What kind of country do we have here? Like, what are what is with these fancy Latin names? All of our big corporations are getting Mondelez, Stellantis. Come on. They should have good old-fashioned German names. That's real American industrial abuse. Fancy Latin names like Twitter becoming 10. (laughs) (laughs) Facebook becoming meta. You're so right. (laughs) Before we just completely go off the rails here. Oh, no. I think the other element of the UAW's tactic here is that 
it also gives them more cards to play. It lets them escalate or de-escalate as conditions uh, call for. For instance, a couple weeks ago, Sean Fain, UAW president, who we'll discuss more in our second segment, was able to announce that the that GM had agreed to cover battery workers, uh, workers at their electric vehicle battery plants in the same contract as assembly line workers who make uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. And that's something that, one, they wouldn't have, like under the NORA, been allowed to strike for uh, covering more oh, people right. under the contract. But two, is a win that few people expected them to get from their efforts here. It's a pretty significant win because it ensures that going forward, the UAW is going to have a say in how these vehicles are built. Especially considering that this strike is making it very clear that the reason we're transitioning to EVs has nothing to do with the environment, has nothing to do with any goodness of the heart on any Person doesn't even have to do with the tax credits. What it has to do with is that EV workers can be paid lower wages. They can be uh, put into plants in the South. That is a famously anti-union region, especially for auto workers. We know that from a long history of failed organization efforts there. And therefore, these companies are turning to EVs as a way to save on labor costs. So this was a demand that GM was not likely to bend on. And Bend, they did, because Sean Fain was then able to say, you know what, we're actually not going to add any more GM plants to our our strike uh, operation. But he did pull a a very nice power move in, uh, was it in the same address or was it a week apart? That's the part. It was a week later. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? Yes. So a week after essentially exchanging the... uh, status quo of the strike in exchange for covering more workers under the UAW's agreement, UAW announced that it would be adding a new facility to its struck locations here. Uh, Kentucky Truck, which is uh, described in these articles as Ford's most profitable operation, is now one of the plants that the UAW is striking against. This, In this case, because UAW's president, Sean Fain, was taken aback by the company's decision not to have a new offer on the table by the end of the week last week. So in this tactic, you have the ability for expansion and de-escalation in a way that really makes it flexible to the moment in a way that like, if you think about the writer strike or the SAG after strike, like the writers went on strike and that was kind of it until they had a contract. The actors went on strike and that status quo will hold until there's a new contract. But with the um, partial and uh, mobile strike the UAW has launched, there's still room for it to wield more leverage against the automakers than it already is. It, it is absolutely legendary that Fane could respond with that. And and also because it exposes these companies keep putting out all this boilerplate stuff. Ford has, in particular, has a spokesman that was a former journalist, and I'm going to guess there's 72 point air quotes around that word, who posts a lot on 
on various social media about how the UAW isn't, you know, behaving like it should and whatever. But in and they talk about how hard they're working to provide such a good but he exposed them in a matter of minutes. That the fact that if if this is true and these automakers really are working as hard as possible to give a good offer to these workers, that white paper should be on the table the moment the UAW asks for it. They have a right to that demand. And the fact that it wasn't met, they're lucky they just lost one plant. Also, by the way, missed chance to name that plant Kentucky. Just saying. Yes. I think that just about does it for this segment. When we come back, we're going to take a closer look at Sean Fain and the change in UAW leadership that he represents, how that change came about, and really the significance of that change. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we've been talking about the United Auto Workers strike that is uh, ongoing throughout the Midwest and at various auto plants uh, by owned by the big three auto manufacturers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which uh, for us and I assume many of you is a newer name, um, that's what used to be Chrysler. In this segment, we're going to take a closer look at Sean Fain, the UAW's president. Because really, he's been at the forefront of this strike in a way that I I think past UAW leaders haven't always. hmm, I'm trying to. Been good representatives for their workers. Well, yes, to some extent. But I, I think it's at least from the interviews he's given and how it seems in those, Fane embraces his role at as. Not just, you know, the president and the administrator of the union, but as its leader, as its moral uh, support and its rhetoric. Just to give an example, in um, the NPR article about the union's win of um, that their contract would cover EV battery workers, Fain gave that speech to the UAW workers while wearing an Eat the Rich t-shirt and uh, had power move a lot to say that I don't think you would have heard from recent UAW leaders. Quote, I'll tell it to you straight. The billionaires and company executives think U.S. auto workers are just dumb, he told UAW members. They think we don't get it. They look at me and they see some redneck from Indiana, he added. They look at you and they see somebody they would never have over for dinner or let ride on their yacht or fly on their private jet. They think they know us, but us auto workers know better, he said. We may be foul-mouthed, but we're strategic. We may get fired up, but we're disciplined. And we may get rowdy, but we're organized. Which is like as inspiring rhetoric as a union leader has given in some time in this country. 
Yeah, and it's it's even more important to talk about, I think, what has happened in the union in the past few years to lead to the point where Sean Fain did get elected. And a few years ago, briefly, the union got in like criminal trouble for its leadership. I think it was two of the three past uh, UAW presidents were uh, found guilty of, or at least went to prison for taking bribes from uh, specifically Chrysler uh, to, you know, give Chrysler favorable deals. So like that led to the union being controlled or, or at least having some federal oversight to make sure that they were actually representing the the needs and um, desires of the workplace uh, or the workers. What they were under was a consent decree, which yes, I'll remind you thanks. is the thing that John Roberts, the witch king of Angmar, basically stopped the federal, the federal government from doing to municipalities and states and, and counties that were trying to disenfranchise minority voters. So if you're trying to end racism, no consent degree. But if you're a corrupt union, consent degree, that's still permitted under federal law. Right. And and like it's it's look it looked bad for the union too because the like unions had and still to to some degree have a bad reputation for being corrupt organizations. And then here was a very powerful union being very corrupt. So that led to this situation where for the first time union members could vote directly on their president uh, before it was like a um, kind of like electoral college version but for unions less direct democracy sean fang got elected because they have more direct democracy now yeah just to get a bit into that so like you said previously uh they had a system where each local of the union would appoint a few members to attend the vote on the president and so each local was equally represented, but you might not have yourself a vote in the process. And as part of this consent degree, as part of its agreement with the uh, federal government, the UAW switched to a election model where now it's one person, one worker, one vote. And it was a pretty close election that uh, Sean Fain won. I think the CNN article says it was just about 500 votes that he won over his opponent. Ray Curry had been the incumbent president of the UAW. He was not implicated in these corruption charges. But importantly, Curry was part of what was called the Administrative Caucus, which, bad name, not something that you want to call yourself. Whole monitor I think, ass general. name. But this administrative caucus had held power within the UAW for 70 years, since the era of Walter Reuther, who uh, we discussed at length in a past episode. I, I think Rich had a lot to say about Walter Reuther. Some of it probably even positive, but I don't really recall the tone of that episode at this time. At any rate, this administrative caucus had been holding the seats of power within the UAW since the 50s. And it has been under their leadership that they've seen the decline that they've seen. Uh, generally, their tactic has been, you know, support for the Democratic Party and maybe less rank and file militancy. And so Fain is the first UAW president to come from outside of that caucus. He represents a real shift, not just in the rhetoric, but 
in where the power lies within the UAW for the first time. We've talked a, a lot over the past couple of years about the nature of NLRB elections where you know workplaces vote on whether they will be represented by a union. But I don't know if we've gotten into internal union elections and the very real differences that they can create and differences that are held within unions because it's easy to talk about them as a solidaristic hive mind, but actually there are disagreements. There are things that they fight about. And here we have a really clear example to highlight what those differences are. It turns out in defiance of what we are constantly told that the same people being in power over and over again and continually finding a way to have their friends and buddies succeed them with no accountability to the wider membership is a bad thing. If only some other institutions that say they're on the side of the worker could occasionally take that lesson. But of course, we know how the iron law of institution works. We know that people prefer that an institution fail while they are personally powerful within it. Yes, I'm talking about the Democratic Party. And, you know, we know how the support of unions, the reflexive support of unions for Democrats turned out, which is to say, well, the UAW is on strike. And to be fair, on strike to the point that they forced Joe Biden to show up at the picket line. The first time an American president has walked a picket line. Which I mean, is, that's really not. Yeah, it's that's a not low really bar, that but it's. Have you seen the people we elect to be president? Yeah. Obama must have forgot his walking shoes. Look, we we can't do this. We cannot talk about Obama and unions. It will not end well. But their power in a in Michigan, a battleground state that famously recent a certain Democratic recent presidential contender contender sort of forgot to devote resources to, even while her own outreach teams were begging for money and staff to make a real competition of it because everyone assumed it was going to be part of that blue wall that was just completely unbreakable as if they hadn't noticed that Americans love nothing more than the exact kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump was peddling in 2016. And what Sean Fain has done here is separate the the parts of that rhetoric that matter, addressing people as human beings, reminding them that they are not simply cogs in a machine controlled by billionaires, and divorced it from everything else about that terrible human being. And when given a chance to essentially say, you know, how how far are you willing to go here? He has made all the right moves. He's not reflexively supporting a, a political candidate, a presidential candidate. He has nothing but contempt for the stuff Trump is doing and makes it very clear that it is off a piece with his existing contempt for the people that he has to uh, negotiate with. There was a brief moment where the media was covering Biden's visit to the picket line and Trump's simultaneous visit visit to Michigan as both uh, talking to union workers when Trump had been invited by the owners of a non-union company to speak. And we've, we've talked at length in the past, I'm punching out about how the um, 
imagery of being blue collar and the actual fact of being blue collar are very different. And nevertheless, the media still gets tripped up by this. It took days for them to correct themselves on the fact that no, actually Donald Trump was not talking to union workers. He was not addressing striking workers. Can I just quickly say, I don't think the media got tripped up on that. I think they meant to do that because they are incapable of as again we're seeing the week that we're recording this they are incapable of not finding a binary in every single thing and this isn't to offend joe biden who is a hack and who was there purely because union power forced him to be there but to say that they needed there to be a counterweight to that in which they could still pretend that donald trump gives a damn about anybody but himself yeah fair so At that appearance by Biden, Fane had this to say, quoting from an article in the Detroit Metro Times, Fane took the bullhorn next, noting the historical significance of the site. Willow Run was part of the, quote, arsenal of democracy that helped win World War II, at its peak turning out one B-24 Liberator bomber plane per hour. Quote, so today, 80 years later, we find ourselves here again with the arsenal of democracy. It's a different kind of arsenal of democracy. It's a different kind of war we're fighting, Fane said. Today, the enemy isn't some foreign country miles away. It's right here. It's corporate greed. He added, and the weapon we produce to fight that enemy is the liberators, the true liberators. It's the working class people. All of you working, working your butts off on those lines to deliver a great product for our companies. That's how we're going to defeat these people. That's how we're going to defeat corporate greed is by standing together. Yeah, like generally, I think people got really, really sick of bootstraps language. Like the pandemic showed everybody starkly how much that they are valued by people who make money off of them, which is to say they're not. They are seen as replaceable. They're seen as expendable. Their safety and well-being is not something that they t- that bosses and corporations take into consideration, and they were sent to slaughter in mass in a hun- like an, an, an enormous death event at this point. Like millions of people have died because we failed to do any kind of meaningful work or protection. And I th- that, I think, has galvanized people into uh, class rhetoric more than anything else. Because y- the grind mindset is gone. If you are somebody who grinds, you are somebody who is too stupid to realize that you're being had at this point. And that's, it's true. You are. Yeah, I think the the promise of the past 20 years, which we had to know was not, was false, was that if you work hard enough, if you scrape by, if you save, if you do everything exactly right, then things will eventually get better. And that your bosses and the upper class and the rich and all of these people, that they were you know, ultimately, they they wanted things to go well for everybody. It's just that if things go better for them than for everyone else, I mean, uh, you know, that's 
that's how it goes. That's what the economy is. It's built to favor certain people and it just happens to favor them. And they would love to pay you more and give you better benefits and all that. And then came the pandemic and it became extremely clear that they would rather we all die, that there'd be a minimal number of us around to help them in a service economy. But that's it. They just want us around for them. They do not want us around as people. And it's good that unions, in this case, helped out by, you know, the, the Justice Department getting involved and all of all of this uh, uh, sclerotic union bureaucracy over the past decades that has built up all of this stuff. They've widened their base. They've chosen to represent non-traditional workers. I mean, again, the United Auto Workers are representing higher ed workers because the American Association of university professors or whatever is generally pretty worthless. So they've found ways to get involved with sectors that did an end run around all of that traditional leadership and were able to build reformist caucuses. Yeah. This is another aside, but I came across an Axios article on uh, Fain and his rhetoric and Axios, if you're not familiar, is an outlet with a very specific house style where uh, paragraphs will start with little bolded pieces that say things like, why it matters, context, quick take. And at the end of this article is just this, the bottom line, rhetoric is strategy that can resonate long after the initial dispute is over. Wonderful stuff. Webster's Dictionary defines rhetoric as, and by the way, that's another great example because that was two former political guys who founded Axios, once again seeking a fancy classical name for their dumbass rag. We have gone off on a Latin tangent in this UAW We're driving the car off the cliff. To get a bit off the, uh, just the rhetoric and into the kind of- To pump the brakes a bit? Enough. <laughs> there is also a concrete material element to the things Fain is talking about and asking for. Uh, the CNN article about his election, uh, written in advance of the strike, notes that Fain campaigned with the slogan, quote, no concessions, no corruption, no tears. The final promise referring to workers hired at the three automakers since 2007 who had a different pay and benefit package than more senior workers. It takes longer for the lower tier workers to reap the top level, reach the top levels of the pay scale, for example, and the benefits are very different. This two-tier contract is something that UAW members have been lamenting basically since it was implemented in 2007, owing to the uh, recession and the bailout and everything that surrounded that. So like, if you can break that setup if you can get back to a system where everybody is on the same contract you're going to not just like win benefits for a lot of workers but you're going to pave over like a division within your union that i think had been a barrier to solidarity for its members yeah it's a barrier to solidarity and it also is reaping short-term goals for long-term problems like you are guaranteeing that every person behind you has it worse and that is the opposite of solidarity and getting rid of these tiered systems is 
has been a a goal for a lot of strikes, including UAW, in in getting rid of of unequal pay based on just when you're starting. If you have the unlucky, you know, lot to be born later, that that shouldn't be what determines your livelihood. It tells you something about the change in how workers see each other, because during all of this, we've been painting this as, you know, and it is, it is a binary struggle. On the one side, you have workers. On the other side, you have Mary Barra and Stephen Ratner, who helped bail out all of these auto industries and is now calling Fane's rhetoric classless, which is very funny. It's extremely classful. It's just the wrong class for him. It is a binary struggle, but we also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's a reason we ended up in this situation, and it's because for a very long time, workers were perfectly fine. Well, okay, maybe not perfectly fine, but they were given a choice between you get some things and then everyone who comes in after you doesn't, or no one gets them. Or everyone gets like the the most minimal version of that benefit. And understandably, unions for a, a long time chose to prioritize their current members. And in many cases, because those were the people electing the delegates who were then voting leadership. And that's not a great way to ensure a long-term future for your union. In fact, if there is one play that corporations would ask you to call so that they could win long-term, it would be that. And yet unions went along with it for a long time. And Fain is offering a vision. Fain, and we should be clear, not just him, but the slate that he was elected with, Margaret Mock, who's the secretary treasurer, LaShawn English, the Region 1 director, Brandon Mencia, the, the Region 9A director that we quoted. These are people who are have been involved and are taking the reins of this union properly for the first time. And they have a mandate here to provide an actual vision instead of just the desire to tweak here and there a few percentage points. They have been asked to transform our view in the 21st century of what a union can do. I want to quote more from Fane, just because he is highly quotable as a person. And this is from an In These Times interview, which was conducted shortly after he was elected back in March. He's talking about the prospect of a 32-hour work week. Uh, Actually, in this article, it's a 30-hour work week is how it's phrased. You know, he's asked how it's possible to ask for that after like decades of the UAW being on the back foot. And this is his response. In the past, when I would be meeting at Black Lake, a UAW conference and education center, in my spare time, I would go to the library there and go through some of the old books and a lot of the old magazines. It's amazing to me that our top leadership in the 1930s and 40s were talking about a 32-hour work week. And you know, 80 years later, in bargaining in 2019, our leadership was agreeing to seven-day, 12-hour schedules. I don't consider a 30-hour work week ambitious. I consider it almost a human rights issue. Our lives, our workers' lives, can't revolve around the companies. Our members are workers. Their health is sacrificed. I can't count how many of our members have had knee replacements and repetitive injuries. That's the reality of standing there on assembly lines, working day after day, seven days a week, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day. 
it's easy to lose sight of the human toll when talking about something as broad as a 32 hour work week, but it really is a change in like all of that for millions of people or at least under the UAW, something like 150,000 people. I think that's probably all we have to say about the UAW for today. When we come back, we'll have a brief last segment, just catching up on some of the news of the past couple of weeks and some of the stories that uh, we can't spend 50 minutes on. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Strikes. And Lou. Hey, guys. Uh, We spent the first two segments today talking about the UAW strike and uh, the leader of that union and that strike, Sean Fain, and some of his rhetoric. We couldn't quite fill an hour with that, so we're going to spend the last few minutes today discussing another strike that has been in the news lately, one that is now over Kaiser Permanente is, um, according to Wikipedia, a integrated managed care consortium, which you know has to be good. Basically, what that means is they are both an insurance company and a series system of hospitals and clinics. So you get, you know, a one stop shop for all of your thousand dollar medical bills. Uh, it's very efficient, I assume. Do you know what's a do you know what's a word that we always use in a positive context? Consortium. That always means <laughs> good things. Total tangent. But you know how in the UK scheme does not have just a negative connotation? They just use it to mean plan without any like wily coyote connotations. So maybe like over there they're saying consortium in a good way. At any rate. In the distant, distant country of California. Yes. Yeah. Workers at Kaiser Permanente uh, had a three-day strike early this month. And from that strike, we're able to win pretty significant concessions from their employer. Quoting from an NPR article about this headline, after historic strike, Kaiser Permanente workers win 21% raise over four years. Striking workers argued an understaffing crisis was hurting patients. This is something we've talked about in the past, how like the pandemic resulted in a lot of people leaving the healthcare industry uh, for various reasons, from COVID death to just the strain of working under that environment for three years. And as a result, we've seen a lot of these sorts of labor actions at hospitals and healthcare consortiums. Consortia, thank you very much. I hate that the undertone of this whole episode is Latin. (laughs) I think you'll find the undertone of every episode I'm on is Latin, technically speaking. Yeah, that's right. Quoting again from the article, both sides credited the involvement of acting U.S. Labor Secretary Julie Su, who was there in person when the final version was hammered out at 3 a.m. in San Francisco. 
This agreement demonstrates what is possible when workers have a voice and a seat at the table, Sue said during a press conference Friday. Collective bargaining works. It may not always look pretty, but unions have, throughout our nation's history, built the middle class. We talked a bit about Fain's rhetoric. I think hearing this from a White House official is also pretty significant. The article notes she's just an acting secretary. She has taken over since Marty Walsh left to run the National Hockey League Players Association and hasn't been able to get confirmed because the government is dysfunctional. Yeah, so the... I hate to say it, but it's possible that these union that the union was successful because uh basically california's healthcare system is kaiser permanente it's just by consortium what they mean it's vertical integration of all points of healthcare. so pharmacies hospitals do- doctors insurance everything comes out of there if you are insured by kaiser permanente and you leave the state of california you are automatically out of network because they're in california and anything outside of there is out of network and it's just healthcare in this country is awful from beginning to end it's bad for workers it's bad for both in terms of working for healthcare and working (laughs) to have healthcare i guess it's abysmal and i i think that with the rise of unions and with the work and, and doctors and, and healthcare professionals speaking out more about the conditions that they're working under, we might get some change in our lifetime, which would be amazing. There was like 100,000 workers that went on strike, too. Yep. It's an absurd number. The largest strike of healthcare workers, I think, in United States history. Yeah, I like it's not a company that I... I'm personally familiar with because it's not in New York state. Uh, they cover, I think it's eight states in DC. It's not insuring like, here. We're talking about, according to this NPR article, 85,000 workers, which is, you know, more than half of the UAW size. So it's a pretty significant chunk of American workers who, because of collective action, were able to get what sounds like a pretty good contract. I think we're out of time for this week. I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I'm Noah, and I'm a teacher. <laughs> and this was punching out. I'm punching out. I'm punching out. You've been I'm listening punching to out. Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.